I got pulled over yesterday. I'm a late. Oh yeah. I'm a month late on uh, my inspection, and I thought oh, I had. You, I, yeah, I thought you don't I had leeway. Do yeah, I thought I had leeway, so I got pulled over by a state trooper, who got right up in my grill, had a buzz cut, did not care about masks or social distancing, and then huh. he uh, he proceeded to tell me that I was. Uh, oh, you're recording, aren't you? <laughs> Well, you know, he just told me that, uh, you know, I had inspection and I did not want to say, yeah, but, you know, I thought coronavirus meant I didn't have to do this, but I felt like he was the kind of guy that did not care about how the coronavirus was affecting my life. So I decided then and there, I was just going to say, yes, sir, accept my ticket and then get it taken care of at court. Did you get a ticket? I got, well, for an, for for uh, inspection well not inspection what's it called the uh your registration thank you for registration um even if you get a ticket on that anytime it's waived once you get it you know taken care of so yeah. so yeah. but yeah but yeah it's gonna, it's just gonna cost me a, a trip to court that i didn't want to take so um, i got one of those a couple of years ago i i let my license expire just kind of kept meaning to go do it and and didn't do it yeah. And then I, then I paid the piper. So I had to park my car for 30 days because of that, remember? And I drove that van to the Herald. Oh, yeah. My dad's oh. van. And then our boss was like, Who's, whose van is that? Yeah. Has <laughs> anybody what? seen so, the red van? <laughs> I'm like, it's mine. <laughs> so real quick, Gordon, uh, tell us who our guest is today because I want to get right back to this and talk about the uh, – just for a few minutes, talk about – the things we did with our vehicles that we were forced to do that other people didn't have to do because we were poor. I want to talk about that because I went, I used to go months and months, almost years without changing my registration. And I would avoid every state trooper like the plague. <laughs> but, uh, but first um, we actually have a guest this week, Gordon, tell us, uh, tell us about this interview and, uh, and who our guest is, please. Our, <laughs> Our guest, um, and we'll bring her on later, is Stephanie Hoover of First Health in Pinehurst. Uh, she works with, uh, she does outreach for uh, opioid addiction, and I think she's got a lot of cool stuff to tell us, very interesting stuff and, and important information, and I'm looking forward to that. But but yeah, uh, Billy, let's talk about avoiding state troopers. I, I mean... That's well, in te- so in Texas, there's like aren't places where they go, you know. Well, no, but in Texas, your what registration, your registration is on. So in North Carolina, obviously, it's on your license plate. I don't know if that used to be different. In Texas, your registration is on your front windshield, and they color code it by year. So if your registration was was due, you know, at the end of November of 2018 or whatever, 2018 was an orange year. So if you get into 2019 and you still have an orange sticker on your car. Then that made it really easy for the state trooper to to see that as they were passing you, you know, each of you coming a different way, and then they would turn around and pull you over. So um, I got it down to where when I would try to drive home from college, and I was maybe five or six months behind trying to get that registration done because my 1986 Ford Ranger would no way pass inspection. Um, I used to purposely take 
back roads or I would take four lane highways and stay as far right as I could. And if I saw a trooper anywhere near me, if he passed me, I would suddenly turn right and go down whatever road that was just to avoid the inevitable of me getting pulled over. It didn't always work. I got pulled over a lot, but, um, I think you just described a crime called fleeing to elude arrest. (laughs) I think it's, I I don't think being poor is a crime. I I was, you don't, (laughs) well, it shouldn't be. I know, I know, I know some people think it is. (laughs) Let's talk about the crimes we committed when we were poor. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to go into that either, but, uh, but no, I used to, I used to, I used to drive, I used to drive thousands of miles over a oil change because I couldn't afford an oil change. I used to drive on bald tires. I used to go without air conditioning for months and months. Um, Just so many things that I would do to avoid having to pay money on a vehicle. It was ridiculous. And for the, for the rare times that my car was running fine, my inspection was up to date, my registration was up to date and I didn't need an oil change. Those were like, moments of nirvana for me but they were very few and far between for me growing up moments of nirvana speaking of crimes we had to commit uh i killed a copperhead i committed a snake murder i've never i've never had to kill a copperhead before what was your weapon oh yeah let me guess use the hoe shovel (laughs) yeah that's a good weapon i use that's a better one than a shovel shovel you got to get too close yeah. Well, hope gives you distance and the angle of the blade is easier. With a shovel, yeah. you actually have to come. Up I saw down. a baby one in our, in our pond like two weeks ago. Yeah. So, Gordon, Gordon, you saw it. Did it did it lunge at you, or um, why why did you kill it? I was told if it's not a if it's not a in any danger, or if you're not in any danger, you're supposed to leave them alone. Who told you that? The internet. Well, it was it was. <laughs> Donald it Trump. Was, it was in an area where yeah, it was in it. <laughs> they're very good. They're very uh, good snakes. They're fine. They're yeah, great. They're great people. Doctor Doctor Basket or whatever her name is. She told me. <laughs> but uh, beautiful snakes. My wife was working in the yard, moving some items around, and she I revealed think- it, and it it was just kind of laying there on its side. And uh, we didn't know if it was dead, but we, we had one, we had to get in there too. I'm not gonna let my little dogs into the backyard when I know there's a venomous snake. Yeah. Um, so I, I, so, I hit it with the hoe and if it was dead, it hadn't been dead for long. Cause it started curling up and having that reflex motion. Um, I had to hit it a couple times. I so was uh, like screaming, <laughs> yeah, ah, 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 ah. prancing around in fear. Uh, it seems like copperheads are the laziest snakes. Like they don't move that fast. You know? No, we we uh, we were clearing out some some a uh, some brush in our side yard last year, last summer, and we didn't see it. We we were feet away from it, and Henry pointed at it and said, "Snake." <laughs> and so you, you know, 90 percent of the times we see a snake in our yard, it's a black, you know, garden snake, or it's one of those little tiny ones. But this was a good three, four foot long copperhead that was, like you said, curled up, but it wasn't moving. And and I, you know, I got the shovel, and I think I missed it. I told everybody I killed it, but 
my first, <laughs> my first strike I missed and it went under the brush. And so I went just, just like, uh, just, you know, like crazy. I went with a shovel and just went blade down 20 times, assuming I killed it. I probably did. I probably didn't, but, um, but yeah, it was uh, a <laughs> was the we most self-contradictory <laughs> account of all time. I, I I probably killed it. I probably didn't. He said <laughs> we were we were, but we were you know we were a good two feet from it for about ten minutes, and it just never moved. And I and I was you know read about it afterward, and they said they won't mess with you unless you practically step on them. So. Oh yeah, I mean they're not like out looking for you, but yeah, I mean let's talk about yeah. Now rattlesnake will, will just it'll fall out of a tree and strangle you and then bite you. Yeah. Just, rattlesnake just will fly across the country just to get you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what yeah, it's good that the airlines are down. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's good, talk about things. Let's talk about uh what we did to that farm. <laughs> oh my god. Sorry. Yeah, no. well, well so yeah. and John, you're the one that, that that found that bit of information that this local business, Harrington and Sons Farms, was identified as the source of an outbreak. And so we reported it. And there's nothing in the story that casts any blame on them or says that they're bad guys or that people shouldn't go there. In fact, they're closed to the public. And yeah, yeah. a lot of the reaction, I think, to that story, you know, I woke up to uh, a lot of people who were interested in knowing where uh, where this, this COVID outbreak had been, but there was a small and, and vocal minority who said, what are you guys doing? You're going to put them out of business. You know, this is after how many weeks of people demanding that we find out, you know, and, and comment after comment that's like, hey, hey, Rant, maybe you could look into where these people work. So This the, is like the most, the most information we've had about anything. We had a lot of heartburn over that story. Amongst the, I mean, not that we didn't want to publish it, but I mean, we considered all these things. We're not heartless. Yeah, and we did reach out to them, and we were concerned that people would think that we were somehow blaming them for a highly contagious virus. And, and yeah, and you know, going forward, we're not going to. If the information is out there, and it can be, um, and it can be verified. And we're not just blindly reporting something based on rumor. If we can verify it, um, we're not going to hold back on reporting something like that because it's a because it's a business run by good people or because we know these people. You know, if if the news is there and it's available, we're going to get it out there the best we can. If I were to learn that, uh, you know, um, the restaurant down the street had a staff of thirty people who were um, infected, but I like eating, you know, but, but I happen to like eating there. I'm not going to not report that because I happen to like eating there. I think it's, it's newsworthy. And yeah, just because Harrington farms is, is a, a fine business run by good people. doesn't mean that that wasn't news and that we shouldn't have shared it. Then it certainly doesn't mean we're trying to bankrupt them or that they even will be bankrupted. Um, no, yeah, so, Hey, um, this is kind of on topic, but do you guys want to go ahead and announce the new farm we're opening up next week? <laughs> Barrington Farms, right next door. Rant Farms. Yeah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I don't mean to make light of it, but 19, that's uh, um, 
That's a big outbreak. I mean, that's a big outbreak. So one of the, one of the things that's striking me about this is uh, I talked I talked to my mom for Mother's Day this week, and she was talking about um, living in Texas and how stuff is starting to get a little bit back to normal there. The county she lives in is about the same population as Lee County, and uh, they've had six confirmed cases since all this started, and that's well below the normal in Texas. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Texas is just as hard hit as, as a lot of other states, but in her county, um, six cases. And so, you know, things are starting to get back to normal there. Um, she asked me, uh, she said, I, I, I see stories that you guys write about it. What are you guys up to? And I think when I talked to her, we were in the two thirties or two forties and, um, I could hear her jaw drop on the, on the line. It was, well, you know why, that is, right? why they don't have a lot and why we do. Yeah. Because coronavirus don't mess with Texas. <laughs> mm. Maybe it's because it's hotter there. I don't know. Well, see, maybe their time is coming. Maybe, you know, I think that's the thing. A lot of rural places think that everything's okay right now, but their, their time is coming maybe too much from now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's spreading as such to where um, I know our good friend, Billy Ball and his new publication, Cardinal and Pine had a story out today about the one County left in North Carolina that hasn't had any cases. And it's just, you know, we were we were in that boat a month ago. We had three cases and and everything was great. And now we're in the we're nearing 300 and we've had back to back days where somebody has died from this. And it's just, uh, you know, it, it's it's hard to it's hard to keep getting this news and then start hearing about, you know, restrictions being lifted when um, counties like ours are kind of I don't I guess we haven't peaked yet. I don't know. So, so uh, about a month ago, I asked what a number would be that made you scared, and you said 80. I, now we're at 280. So, well, 280 didn't scare me. I just, I just don't like the number 80. <laughs> Once we got to 81, you're fine. That was fine, yeah. Um, but, you know, we said this last week, and also, it's, it's sort of borne out where you have days where it's one case or a handful of cases – and it's a long stretch and then you have a, a huge spike and I still don't know what's driving that, but it could be, I, you know, I remember the day that there was 19 cases in one day. I wonder if that was related to the Harrington farms or if that's just a coincidence, but yeah, I think it is. Yeah. The, the news and observer also finally came out today and said that Pilgrim's pride here in Sanford had between them and Mount air in uh, Chatham County, of the workers tested there, there was like a 60% positive rate. And, and you don't have to work in a a meat processing plant or in an agricultural setting to catch this, but it does paint a picture that seems to indicate that those situations are what's driving our number or, or in large part are what's driving our number. And I think, uh, the Pilgrim's pride number, you say 60% of those tested, um, do you know from the article, I didn't read the article, but, uh, is it only people who were showing symptoms were tested or was everybody say. tested? Well, see, that's the thing. They, I think that when, a, when something, there's a case in an area like that, they test like the whole staff yeah. and that's how they get big numbers. Like in news, news correctional, they, they had like 18 cases 
a few weeks ago. So they tested all the inmates and they had like over 400 almost. I think that 98% of those were asymptomatic and never showed symptoms. Yeah. So that's why the numbers go up like that. Uh, Campbell University made news this week and I've had to field phone calls from WRAL and ABC, but uh, Campbell was the first university to announce that um, all of its students would be getting their own dorm room if if uh, campuses reopen in the fall. And they've had to do a lot of reshuffling on campus to make that happen. Uh, I am a casualty of that. My office is being moved because a dorm, a building is being converted to a dorm and those people are more important than me. So they're, <laughs> so I'm being bumped to another place on campus. But, uh, but yeah, Campbell's going, doing that. And I think people are, are understanding this whole, was it called congregational living? That's a... Uh, Congregal living, yeah, that's a uh, congregate, conju- conjugal, Con- <laughs> congregate, yeah, that's uh, that's what's driving it up right now, and uh, not only living but work working together like that. So, yeah, we're uh, we're closing in on three hundred cases here in Lee County, and uh, yeah, has, did, did either of your lives change at all with the uh, soft reopening of the state? No, same here. No. Uh, but like, I think you can go to like Marshalls now. Okay. I didn't. I don't go to Marshalls anyway. There is one thing that's changed about me, and it, this wasn't. Don't get me wrong. I was not doing this because I was against it or because I was putting my foot down. But I finally got my own mask this week. Finally, um, I'd been wearing uh, the really cheap ones from you know that you get when you walk into a. When you walk into a doctor's office, but this was a homemade mask from a friend of ours. And so we had some homemade ones. My aunt sent some ones that she made that are, that are nice. So I've been, been using that. It, it is branded with my alma mater, East Carolina university. I'm showing my nice. pirate pride when I go out and about. Hey, we need the, some rant masks. The pirate was a great idea. Coronavirus. So do you feel odd wearing that in public? I thought I would, but I really didn't. Cause I got um, but, you get used to it. You do. Yeah. You'll get funny looks from some people. Yeah. Yeah. I always feel like when I pass, when I pass somebody, I had to run into a grocery store in Lillington and I was not wearing one. And uh, I got funny looks from people who were, but then I wore one the other day and then I was getting funny looks from the guys who, you know, probably were against wearing this. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, you too now, huh? Yep. Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> I've been called that a lot lately. I, I So our guest uh, this week is Stephanie Hoover. Uh, Stephanie wears many hats. She's a peer support specialist, health coach, former Army spouse, friend, and most importantly, a mother and a grandmother. She's a native of Texas, but grew up in Charlotte before she moved to Pinehurst to raise her six children. And on June 2nd, 2017, she received the phone call that no parent ever wants to receive. Her son, Alex Humphrey, had overdosed at 22 years old. Since that day, Hoover's hope is that the way her son lived and died would not be in vain. Through her experiences prior to and following Alex's death, she's made it her mission to change the outcome for other families. So as a peer support specialist with the Sand Hills Opioid Outreach Response Consortium, 
Hoover is working on the front line to raise awareness, educate, and assist people in the Sand Hills region who are directly impacted by the opioid epidemic. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for joining us. Uh, do you just want to get started by telling us, you know, some of the details about what you do with First Health? I would be happy to. Um, I am the coordinator for Lee County, Hope County, and Montgomery County. Um, what that consists of is building bridges with partners so that we place peer support specialists within multiple organizations such as DSS, health departments, primary care physicians, um, the jails. We are working closely with many um, organizations within Lee County. We work with Daymark, Spectrum Recovery. Um, We also are working with different entities within the government in Lee County, as well as the jail and the sheriff's department. Um, We're really privileged to be working with all of our partners. They are all playing a very intricate role in what we're doing. The consortium works really hard because we feel that it is very important. And all of us, most of us have a very personal reason as to why we do what we do for me, especially the, the death date of Alex is coming up very soon. So it is important to me when someone is reaching out for help to be there for that individual and try to link them with other people who um, have either walked that walk, um, link them to treatment. Um, we work very closely um, with treatment facilities. We have a website that lists many, many resources. Um, we have learned and, and know that everybody's road to recovery looks different. Mm-hmm. So where some, they may do inpatient, some may do outpatient, some may do a mixture of both. Some may use um, MAT and MAT is medically assisted treatment. Um, it just okay. depends on where that person is and we want to meet them where they are. So that's really important. Um, One of the things that the consortium did when COVID-19 really took us by storm in March was we knew that everything was going to be shutting down. We needed to be able to continue the work that we're doing within a week. We had a Facebook page set up and we have peer support specialists who manage a um, support group every day. So there is a live support group every day of the week. It's called uh, A New Way to Recover. And it, when we started, we had six people and they were all peer support specialists. Today, we have over 150 um, members and it grows daily. Um, we started a media campaign actually last week where Um, We have ads and papers, we have billboards, um, we're doing PSAs on the radio, and those pieces within a week have reached individuals, have reached caregivers. Um, Caregivers are a huge part of my heart because that's who I was. And so reaching people who are dealing with users, teaching them how to set healthy boundaries, teaching them how to pull back on enabling is really, really important to me. We also work very diligently right now um, on harm reduction kits. We feel it's important that, you know, some people in the communities will say, why, why talk about harm reduction? Because there are people that aren't ready to stop using. And if we can start conversations and say, okay, if you're not willing to start, stop using right now, 
are you willing to maybe use less? And so teaching them what that looks like and asking those questions and then providing them with a Narcan kit because Narcan is saving lives. Lee County, it breaks my heart, but since COVID, first quarter last year, you guys had uh, 30 overdoses. First quarter this year, you had over 70. So um, you're having about one a day, if not more. People are, the isolation I think is hurting people. I think that people are getting stimulus checks and they're using that and they're overdosing on that. Mm. So really trying to work hard to meet people where they are, especially during this time. Uh, you'd mentioned uh, COVID-19 and I think Gordon uh, was going to, was going to ask you more about that. But before, before that, I wanted to ask you about this region. You, you say um, it's gone up considerably in Lee County already. Uh, I got introduced to this subject a few years ago through Campbell University and their rural health initiative. And uh, I learned startling statistics uh, coming out of Wilmington and Fayetteville. And I believe, uh, I think it was Asheville and, and some a few other uh, cities here in North Carolina. Um, Wilmington, in fact, led the nation in uh, opioid abuse. So it's, it's really prevalent here. So I was just curious, you say it's getting worse here. How, how, is, how does Lee County compare to some of these harder hit areas? And uh, you explain why it's getting worse here, but uh, is it strictly due to um, everybody being self-isolated and COVID-19 or are there other underlying issues that's making it a worse problem here? I think there's probably a combination of multi, multiple things that are, that are causing it. I think isolation, you know, one of the first things that that you're taught in recovery is don't isolate, go to meetings, go to be social, connect with, with um, sponsors and that, that type of thing. When you have someone struggling, especially users, if they can't work, if they can't connect with other people, anxiety goes up, depression goes up. So they're seeing that, you know, stimulus checks give them extra money. So it could be that they're they're purchasing more drugs. We don't know that at this point. What is the cause of it? Um, other counties, it's it seems that the overdoses are staying pretty much about the same number. Don't understand why Lee County seems to just be exploding right now with overdoses. That's I guess what I was going to go into just talking about the impact of COVID on. Your business is not like other businesses. Um, Addiction doesn't stop because of a pandemic. And in addition to people needing to get what they need to get, I I think they're also putting themselves at risk. And I wonder if, if those discussions have been a part of your work in all this. It, it, it has um, a great quote that we heard drug dealers are not going to isolate. They're going to keep on going. They're not shutting down. Their businesses probably have increased. I have read where, you know, they may not be able to get as much of a product as they normally do due to the stay-at-home orders. So it seems that drugs are getting mixed. That could be a piece of the puzzle as to why there's more overdoses. I don't know. You know, we don't know the reason. We don't know the purpose behind the increase. Um, I think people are are feeling more desperate 
they're feeling more lonely. I think if people understand substance abuse, normally there's a dual diagnosis. So depression is going to play a part. Anxiety is going to play a part. You know, they're seeing an increase in, in battery cases. You don't know if that's, if that is playing a part of that as well. I think that it's going to be a multitude of pieces that are playing a part in the increase in overdoses. Uh, This is John. Um, Do you think people are reluctant to go to the hospital because they've been told only COVID cases at the hospital? I don't know. I mean, in this particular population, um, I will tell you that they're reluctant to go to the hospital, period. So if there's an overdose, it takes a lot to get responders to get someone who's overdosed to go to the hospital. If they can get them to go to the hospital, they're going to encourage that. Have there been, um, you you referenced some of the um, online support groups. Have there been any other kind of innovative ways that uh, the, the COVID crisis has made you guys adapt? Has there been any other examples of things that you're doing that maybe you never would have thought you would be doing? Yes. So one of the things that um, it has prompted us to move forward with a lot more quickly than we thought is we are working on a piece of technology and this piece of technology will allow us to, it's, it's like where you could put an app on your phone and they can download the app. The app would allow them to connect one-on-one with a peer. It would show them resources that they can reach out to. It would connect them with us if they needed help finding a place for treatment. Um, it would help them connect with us if they're, if they need a place to live, if they need food, if they need clothing. Those are things that this new app will help individuals with, that are dealing with substance abuse connect with. We have been doing men and women in recovery within the jails. Um, it has been an exceptionally helpful tool that we have been able to do. Uh, we have seen some, some positive outcomes. Um, unfortunately, with the COVID, we had to stop that. Moving forward, we are planning on starting this again. And the goal is to use this new technology in the jails where they can continue doing helping men and women in recovery. And the peer support specialist does not necessarily have to be there. So we're working out a lot of the details for that right now. Was there any other thing, questions that you guys wanted to ask, uh, Stephanie? I think Jonathan had, had mentioned something. That if, uh, um, I just, um, uh, when I was listening to Gordon tell your, uh, your bio about your son, it brought up my niece actually passed away four years ago from this same, from an a, overdose and it was just really hard on my whole family it still is um what do families go through can you expand on that a little bit so when my son died um his story is is quite you know typical of users um he was married he had a little girl um she was one two weeks after he passed away we found out that his wife was pregnant so i now have a granddaughter who's never met her father Wow. Um, I think the thing that surprised me the most, and it causes you to get emotional. I wasn't prepared 
for the reaction of the community, of reaction of people that were so-called friends. Um, yeah, we felt the same way. Um, just seems like there's it's a bit of a stigma. So I felt like I had a plague. Yeah. Um, I can tell you it's been, June will be three years. I can still go into the grocery store. And, you know, Pinehurst is not that big of a community. Um, and we've been here over 20 years. So I know a lot of people within the community. But I can still go in the grocery store and people, when they see me, will turn and walk away. Um, I had an incident wow. where um, I ran into someone. Her son was a friend of my son's. And she started crying and she said, I'd never wanted to see you. And I understood it. I got it. And I had to comfort her Yeah. because her son chose recovery and her son was a changed individual. And I said, you know, it's okay. I'm glad that your son is choosing life. But what I know to be true is recovery has got to come first. If recovery doesn't come first, everything else in a user's life is going to come last. And in my son's case, it didn't matter how much he loved me. It didn't matter how much he loved his siblings. It didn't matter how much he loved his wife and kids. The drugs came first. Hmm. And it, it took his life. That's how it was with us. It just progressively, it went fast, but it, you can see more and more things were just not important to her anymore. And, uh, and I think the key thing that, you know, people looking on the outside who have never dealt with addiction, who they say, I don't have anybody in my family that is a user. They look at addiction as, oh, this is a choice. Yeah. Addiction is a disease. The reason why one person starts using is not the reason they keep using. The reason they keep using is they want to feel normal. And that's what normal feels like to them. You say you say it's been it's been tough uh, being out in the community. Probably not all the time, but but I imagine there are times for you. Um, but I imagine there's also uh, you mentioned some positive things that have happened in your career since then. How have you been able to take your experience and help others, not just professionally, but I think personally? I think for me, when Alex started using. I was very judgmental. When he passed away, I made a promise to him that his life was going to have meaning. And I studied very hard what addiction was, how it affected me, how it affects the family. So when I started doing this, I made a promise to myself that I was going to give my all. I don't judge someone who's a user. I want to meet them where they are. I want to do everything in my power. If I say I'm going to help you, I'm going to do everything I can. If it takes a couple of days, that's what I'm going to do. I've seen a story in particular where an individual was at the lowest point of her life. And I wanted to believe that she was going to grasp recovery, but I didn't know that she had the willpower to do it. 60 days later, she's a different person. Mm -hmm. Do it. That's amazing. We're uh, we're running low on time. I wanted okay. to ask you one last thing, um, and you you sort of already referenced it, but you 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 mentioned um, the judgment that you got from some people in the community. 
has has there been a flip side to that though and through this you know this terrible situation uh you've been able to make new connections with new people who who, who understand you better 100 percent um i think I did not have a choice of the passion that I chose and, and the path I chose. It was, it was presented to me in a very difficult way, but this is my passion and this is the path I know I'm to be on. The people that I have met, the partners that we work with, with the Sandhills Consortium, the, mm-hmm. the team that I work with, I would not trade any of them for anything because we are making a difference. And every day we're connecting with new people within the community that say, we didn't know you were out there. We are so glad that you're doing what you're doing and you're giving us hope. And that's really what our team is trying to do. That's what all the partners within the consortium are trying to do is give hope to those that are feeling so hopeless. Great. Great. Well, um, well, look, thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you for sharing um, you know, a really personal experience. Um, I think that this will be, this will all be useful information for our, uh, for our listeners. Our, our latest edition has a, a two page spread that has information on how people can, uh, on how people can seek help through, through first health. Um, is there any information you want to give on, on how you can be reached on or resources that you have where people can, can learn more? Absolutely. For those that want to get on the Facebook Live, it's a new way to recover. Um, they just need to ask to join the group. They can find us uh, at firsthealth.org backslash recovery resources. And our information is there. And they can reach us at the office, 910-715-1509. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, this is a, a hugely important um, topic that uh, I know we've been writing about it for for a few years now and and will continue to as long as as long as it needs to be written about but we really respect the work that you do and we appreciate you spending time to talk to us about it today happy to do it thank you for asking me thank you thank you Stephanie guys want to um end this you can end it without me but um i'm going to go ahead and and go yeah all right well um you can leave and me and john will absolutely bash you